when Miles was one years old, uh, Marty decided that we were going to throw this huge party for a one-year-old, um, which I always thought was just the dumbest thing, because uh, the one-year-old doesn't remember anything about that party, and yet we had to invite all these adults to come over and do, like, dumb kid party stuff, and I felt like it was so weird, because I can remember having, like, my pastor at the time, who I was working with, was, like, sitting on the floor, like he was a kid at a birthday party, and I was just like, why are, why are we doing this? I mean, sometimes it feels like when you... you you're going to like celebrate every single year of your existence. Um, you know, it feels like, okay, maybe just like do five years or 10 years or 20 years. Like, do the bigger ones. Um, but four years actually feels kind of significant because um, I feel like it may not have felt significant, but after the last two years that we've kind of been through as a church and the whole world's been through, you've been through, um, it feels like we should be celebrating when things come out the other side and look like what they looked like before COVID and before all the craziness and... Uh, you know, we, we celebrated at six months. People th- said, that was, was like, why are you celebrating at six months? Because we like the party, okay? Just deal with it. Celebrated at a year, uh, two years, three years were like less of celebration because we, honestly, one of those years we really didn't even have a live service to, to be able to celebrate. So I'm thankful that God has been faithful to this church through these first four years and has done incredible things. And I'm thankful for all of you guys for being part of that. And um, and so today, I, I want to talk again about Acts 15, because it is so important and transformational. And um, in the beginning of this sermon, I'm going to talk touch on some stuff that, if you want the more in-depth version of this, we actually cut a podcast this week. Um, the best way to find our podcast is to download the app that we have. Just go to the Google or iTunes store and type in Pursue Community Church, download our app. Right on the front page, it has uh, our sermon podcast in our podcast podcast, um, the Always in Pursuit podcast, um, and we just did an hour long, and it's super nerdy and deep, so if you're not like a theologian, you may not want to listen to it, but if you do like digging in, this would be a really great thing to go listen to to supplement what we're going to talk about today. But Acts 15 is a just transformational moment in the history of the church, and it's transformational not just for them, it's transforma- transformational still for us, and in every culture where the gospel takes root, it's a transformational piece of theology, of something we believe about the Bible or about God. And I was trying to think of how to illustrate what this is, and I feel like if there's any um, younger parents, parents who have had kids in school in the last like 10 years doing like grade school, you'll maybe understand this when I talk about common core math, uh, new math. Has anyone here struggled with trying to help their kid learn math with the new kinds of math that like, uh, so some of you guys are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. When we grew up going to school, there was a way to do math. It was a formula. It was a law. It was like, hey, you learn the details of how to do this, and then you apply the law all the time, and there aren't really any issues with it doing it. You just have to remember this formula, and then you have to learn how to apply this formula, and that's how math works. And I can remember, for me, uh, being somebody who... You know, I, I don't really like rules very much, um, so if you show me something, then I'll figure out five other ways to do it, just because that's how my brain works. And so when I was going through math in school, I would un- try to understand the formula and try to understand what was actually happening when I was doing the math. And I got to the point where in high school I got to be a math tutor, and in college I got to be a math tutor. Um, I, even to this day, if I wasn't a pastor, I would be a middle school math teacher. I know that sounds crazy, some of you guys are like, that would be absolutely nuts. It's my favorite kind of math. Give me algebra, geometry all day long. You know, give me kids who don't understand it at all, and let me help them solve, figure out what they're doing. But the new math is just a, a way of doing it five different ways so somebody can understand what they're actually doing. 
Instead of like memorizing a formula and, and applying that formula to everything, it's trying to help the, the person who's learning math understand what they're actually doing with the formula. Okay? That's how my brain worked. So as a tutor, I would say, okay, the traditional way is not working for this person who's sitting in front of me. They can't memorize the formula. They can't apply the formula. They don't understand the formula, whatever. So let me help them understand how to actually do this math. And we'd break it down, and I'd help explain what we're actually doing, and then they could reason through it, and they could understand it. I was doing new math before new math was like part of the curriculum. Okay? So it was like something that I was kind of working through. And when it came out that this was now the way that we're teaching math, I was like thrilled about it. Of course, you turned on Twitter and you saw parents who were frustrated. All they knew was a formula and how to apply it. They were like, I don't know how to teach my kid math. I hate this. I hate these new math things. I don't know how to do this. This is terrible. Because they felt like something had changed from when they were a kid. And the way that the church is kind of going through the motions here in Acts 15, and what's actually happening here is that God is doing something new. right? He's expounding on, explaining, uh, extending, you know, even fulfilling the law so that people who have been applying a rule and a law their entire life and just sort of applying it to their lives as a set of rules and a, and a law now will understand what this law was really about why they were supposed to do it, what they were doing when they did it, and then to understand the spirit of what, behind what was behind the law and to apply that differently. And we talked about the law and we talked about the new covenant last week and the idea that the new covenant is so much more simple. It's not 612 uh, laws and rules that you have to follow. It's like three. It's like love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat others the way that you want to be treated. In fact, treat Others, your enemies, people that you're in church with, everybody, the way that Christ, the way that God in Christ has treated you, right? The, the new covenant is so simple that it explains kind of what the law was trying to do, but it is so difficult to actually fulfill. And so as the church got together here and talked through, hey, what, what kind of like requirements are we going to ask people to go through to be a Christian? They said, let's get rid of all the most difficult stuff, the one things that derail people into the ditches, and let's focus on the three or four things that we've learned from Jesus about how to actually apply and fulfill the law. And that's hard enough. Right? I don't know about you. Yesterday when we were here with all the guys, uh, you know, we were talking about discipleship with, with 30 of our guys from church, and, and I, don't, I don't know how you feel, but sometimes I feel like the worst disciple in the world. I'm having a hard enough time trying to keep track of and applied Jesus' four or five rules, four or five guidelines for the new covenant to my life. And maybe you feel like you've mastered all that stuff, and if that's the case, this is an imperfect church for imperfect people. You're at the wrong place. There is a church down the road that will gladly accept your perfection. It's not us. Uh, and so I don't know how you feel about it, but to me, Jesus was simplifying the entire thing and saying, this is about relationship. It's not about rules. You know, I know that that can be cliche sometimes, that, that idea of this is a relationship and it's not religion or it's not about rules. But this is what Jesus was doing. He was narrowing down the field of what to pay attention to and saying, I want my followers to look like this. I want them to worship God with all of their heart and with everything they have. I want them to love other people all the way out to even their enemies. And I want them to be able to treat others the way that I am going to treat them. And so as they go through Acts 15, they get to a point where James stands up and he kind of synthesizes the whole conversation. Are we going to expect 
these non-Jewish believers to go through circumcision and to eat the way that we're supposed to eat and to follow the 600 laws and to be a Jew, essentially, before they become a Christian. And this is what James said. It's not, it's not on your slide. Uh, he says, It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He said, There are people turning to God, and instead of burdening them with all of these rules, let's just focus on what it looks like to be a believer. And we know that God is in this because they're receiving the Holy Spirit. They're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We can see that the Holy Spirit is active in their lives. We can see that they have the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. We see in them peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. We see all these things in them. We know the Holy Spirit is active in them. We see what they're doing. We know that God is in this. And so let's just make it easy for them to turn to God, not have to do the Jewish thing and the Christian thing, not have to get a whole bunch of adult men circumcised. Let's not do that. Let's not give them a whole bunch of rules where now they have to eat differently than they've ever eaten before. Let's not burden them with laws about cleanliness and blood and you know, all this other stuff. Let's just, let's just focus on what's really, really important here. Because Jesus has changed everything. He's doing something new. And to the people who had grown up with old math, they're frustrated beyond belief. They're going, this isn't how I was taught. This isn't how it went for me as a kid. I don't understand this. I can't apply this. This doesn't make sense to me. And there was friction. There was tension in the church. And so they came together. And so the next thing they said, said, okay, so instead we should write to them. So let's send out a letter to all the churches, which, by the way, the end of this chapter, they send the letter out and everybody's excited. They all receive the letter. They all feel supported. The church is very unified. He says, instead, let's write a letter to them. And then he says, the law is not important, but let's tell them to abstain from a couple things. Let's tell them not to do a few things. So he says, I want them to abstain from food polluted by idols. I want them to abstain from sexual immorality, from the uh, meat of strangled animals, and from blood. It's almost like they took four things out of this like, list of laws, and they went, just no laws, no Jewish stuff, but let's, let's, let's save these four things. And you're like, why these four things? What's the story here? And what you realize, if you dig into what these four things are, which I'm going to do in just a second here, you realize this was really actually about unity for the new church. That you had these old math people and these new math people that had to live in relationship with each other. They had to eat together. They had to be in, you know, they had to pray for one another. They had to be in community with one another. They had to engage every single time they got together. They had to be together. They had to go through the tension of what was kind of keeping them apart and causing conflict. And so, if the stronger brother, the newer person in the faith, who's more free, could flex their freedom and give up some things to meet some of these religious people halfway, it would create a lot more unity in the church. And I know that the people who were religious weren't seeing it that way. I think today we have a similar situation. And I want you to understand that the stronger and the weaker brother here that we're about to take a look at the stronger brother is the freer brother, and the weaker brother is the one who's wrapped up in religion. Now, I don't mean for this to be political, so please don't understand what I'm about to say as a political statement, but Jesus almost always tangled, got into to, uh, tension with, called out, yelled at, was kind of mean to, sarcastic to, conservative people. I know, just take, I don't mean it politically. Religiously, conservative people were the ones that he tangled with the most. Jesus made it like his mission to basically make religious, conservative people feel uncomfortable. Okay, I'm a religious, conservative person. I don't know about you. I hope you are. I don't know where you stand on this whole thing. Jesus made religious, conservative people uncomfortable. 
He called them out for their hypocrisy. He said, hey, you're judging other people. You're not following through on these laws that you're holding everyone else accountable to. You know, he met sort of people who had no clue, who were completely irreligious. I would call them very liberal people. He met them in a place of grace almost every single time. Uh, It's almost like Jesus was kind of pushing the people who knew better, calling them out, challenging them, and making room for somebody who didn't know better to come and be part of what was going on. And I, I want you to know that's still part of what it means to be a good church. That's part of why, uh, as, a, as a pastor, I, you know, there are different types of pastors. I hope that you've like, opted into this, into me as your pastor. I, I'm definitely not anyone who's ever going to pull the punches and not challenge you and not, not call out hypocrisy and not tell you what you need to hear when you need to hear it. In fact, often I would say I'm much more of a prophet than I am a Uh, a pastor, because oftentimes I'm basically pleading with everyone, right? And pointing the way towards something that God is calling us to, even though we don't necessarily always want to hear that. that. And so if you're looking for Mr. Theology Pastor, uh, that's not me. I'm Mr. Prophet Pastor. I'm going to be in your face. I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. And I'm going to do it with a smile on my face. And I'm going to love you through it. And I'm going to put my arm around you and say, we can do it. But I'm not going to not challenge you, right? And I feel like sometimes as church, we can get right back into the same rut that we were in in Acts chapter 15, where we say to the world, you're welcome to be here as long as you do things the way that we want you to do them. You better get it together before you come be part of this church, because that's what we're looking for. I think there was a time in the history of this country where we probably expected people and you know, this is something I've kind of believed throughout my whole career, especially was very applicable to youth ministry. There's been times where we've said, hey, behave first, then believe in Christ. Now you can belong. So we have the gate. We keep the gate. We say, you can't belong till you behave, till you believe. Some combination thereof. Maybe you believe and then behave, but you can't belong until you... And nowadays, I feel like the way that we integrate with people, the way that we encourage people is like, bring your baggage, bring your stuff, you can belong right now. We don't know what's going to happen, but we hope that you'll believe. We hope that when you hear the gospel enough, when you hear the, the challenge that the gospel provides in your life, that you'll be moved to change, to transform. And then we'll get to behavior later on down the road. The behavior will come last. It'll be a lagging indicator of your faith in Jesus. It'll be the last thing that gets together. You know, you're, you'll overcome some of those sins in your life. You'll overcome some of those hang-ups that you have once that you have that relationship with Jesus. But just come be part of what's going on. Get to know who Jesus is. Find faith in Christ, and then we'll work on your behavior later. Okay, that's what it looks like, I think, to be a really great church nowadays, is to welcome people in, to let them be part of what's going on, and then to work on their faith, and then to see their behavior come together later on. So I want to I just point out two ways that as the religious conservative people that we should see ourselves, and, and also two ways that as newer believers or freer believers that we should see ourselves. And I think what ends up happening here, what they end up asking is that, that these two groups of people should both find ways to submit to one another so that there's unity. And so I'm going to challenge you that there's a place for you to submit somewhere. So let me go to first to Romans chapter 14. So this is Paul kind of talking about uh, the idea of the weaker and stronger brother and the idea of submission to one another. And here's what he says in Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak. And when you read that, I know, I know how I read it. When I read it, I start to think, well, that's not me. 
The one whose faith is weak is not me, because I've been a Christian since I was 13 years old, and I've been discipled through all of that. I've been to Bible college. I'm a pastor. I look at that, and I say, my faith is strong. I'm not the weaker brother. Okay, but just allow this scripture to work on you for a second. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. So he says there's a lot of things we don't need to fight over. There are some things we do need to fight over. There's a couple of issues that we have to be close-handed on, and we have to say, you know, that how we, what we think about Jesus is one of those things we have to hold on to. How we uh, interact with God's Word is one of those things we have to hold on to. We have to, be, we have to be close-handed on those things. There's a lot of things that are open-handed issues. We don't have to agree on. We don't even have to have uniformity or unanimity in our church. There could be a lot of uh, different, diverse opinions on certain things, and we don't really care because that's not part of the mission of what we're doing here as a church. I don't care whether you do certain things that we can dispute over. I care whether you believe what the Bible says about Jesus, how you interact with his word. Those are things that we have to agree on. On our website is our statement of faith. You can go take a look at it. Those are things that we say. These are things we hold kind of closely to the vest and we don't want to let go of. But there's a lot of things we can have disputes over, okay? So he says, without quarreling over disputable matters. I think religious people and I think conservative people often want to force everybody else to take on their viewpoints and see that, that there's only one correct way to live and get very controlling often with other people over these kinds of issues. And it leads to issues in the church. He says, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. And it goes on further. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, Make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. He says, to the new believers who are probably Christians for less than 10 years, who are free to eat everything out there and not to follow the 600 customs of the Jews, that your faith is stronger because you're exercising and living in your freedom. That the ones who are tied up in their religion, their faith is weaker. That their faith causes them to sin, to judge their brother, to feel like they're inadequate, to try to control other people into doing what they do. He says the stronger one is the freer one. The stronger one is the one who knows how to exercise their freedom and still worship Jesus and still have the Holy Spirit in their life. They're the ones that are the stronger ones. And he says what should happen is that the stronger ones, the freer ones, should give up their rights, should submit, find ways to meet the, the weaker brothers halfway as if not to put a stumbling block in front of them, not to trip them up in their walk with Jesus, not to cause them to sin. And we see this all over the place, you know, like this is, these are those disputable matters, right? We think of like drinking. I wonder, I'm already writing a sermon for when we legalize marijuana in, in Minnesota, so just get ready for that one. Your prophet's going to get in your face and you're not going to love it. Uh, right, there's a lot of issues out there where we could disagree and we could have freedom in how we believe about it. But the main thing he wants you to know is that you might be free to do these things, but you also should submit to your weaker brothers and sisters and not put a stumbling block in front of them. And I've always heard this the other way. I've always heard this, that if, you know, if you're free to drink alcohol, but you have somebody who comes over that struggles with alcohol, you shouldn't put alcohol out on your table when they come over. That's a no-brainer. It makes sense to me. But this is not what, what Paul's saying here. He's saying when you have a friend who's tied up in their religion, right, who's living by rules and law, and you're free to do stuff, 
And you should be careful to submit so that they don't find themselves in sin. Not that they're weaker in what they're doing. That Actually, their religion is the thing that they're strong in, but they're weak in their relationship with God because they're tied up in the, 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 the binds of religion. That should challenge all of us. I think we hold some things that we do very closely as important for everyone, and in reality, we're tied up in religion, and the stronger, freer brothers among us might need to be the ones that meet us halfway. But we're the weaker one. That if your relationship with God is based on rules and laws and religion, you're the weaker brother. And if your, your relationship with God is based on freedom and grace and understanding your relationship with Jesus, you're the stronger brother. And it might be okay for you to use your freedom, but you should be willing to give your freedom up so that you can have unity within the body of Christ. Is everybody following me here? That Paul actually makes the case that the people that we would think would be stronger are actually the weaker ones. I think sometimes we can think, I've been a Christian for a long time. I know all the rules. I've mastered this. I've, I'm, I have this, these rhythms in my life. And now I'm just trying to make sure everybody else follows the same rhythms as me. And we actually tie ourselves up in new rules, new guidelines, new law. Instead of understanding that we are all in need of grace. And are forgiven, not in our own merit, but because Jesus has freed us. And he's made us free. Okay, more, more on that in a second. So then Paul, in another section of Scripture, talks about a very specific thing. So I would actually say that this, these two issues that come up, so he says the blood, or the meat from strangled animals and the blood are issues that fall into this category, where a Jew who's tied up in their religion and tied up in their law would have a really hard time eating any meat that was from a strangled animal or touching any blood. These were two things that they would absolutely not do because... For them, this was life was in blood, and they would never, ever eat something from a strangled animal. They would actually be offended to be offered it, so it would have caused problems within the church. So that, if we're applying that, we would have said the weaker brother is not free to do those things, and so the, the stronger brother should give up those things in order for the weaker brother. Okay, so for them being... But then he says, also, we shouldn't eat food polluted by idols. And you're like, well, what's that one about? Yes, Jews would never eat food polluted by idols, but I actually think that one goes more to the... I'm a believer who's not going to put out alcohol at my house. So here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. So Paul directly deals with this issue in 1 Corinthians 8. And he ties this to a completely different person that we should give up our, uh, our, our freedom for. He says, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. He's basically saying, Food that's given to idols, so food that's, that's basically... Uh, Sacrifice to idols, it's cooked, and then it would be sold, usually. So you'd go to the, the pagan temple, and you'd buy a burger, right? And you'd go home, and you'd eat it, and it would be like, it's like going to McDonald's, essentially, back then. The, the idol worship, where they were the ones cooking the meat, and you would go and buy the meat from them in some of these cities. And he's like saying, there are some people who, when they associate that meat, they associate it with the idol. We know there's nothing to that. We know there is no idol you know, there is no thing, they're not making the meat, like there's nothing magical happening there. If you eat that meat, nothing is going to happen to you in the spiritual realm. Like we understand that you'd be free to eat that. Okay, so he says, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, they are defiled. He's not talking about the, weak, the, the weaker brother who's tied up in religion. He's talking about the former idol worshiper. He's talking about a person who didn't know Jesus at all, who was an idol worshiper, who is now coming into the church with no religion at all, and they have a problem going back and eating the food that's been sacrificed to an idol because to them, 
That was their worship. That was part of their worship before they met Jesus. So this would be somebody who comes into the church who has a really crazy background, who has kind of put all that stuff away, and for them to dip their toe back into that water, for them, it means something specific to them. And he says, you should put away that stuff because you need to sacrifice your freedom to make sure that you're creating a straight path for this person who's turning, turning to God. So he says, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat the sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, no better if we do. Be careful then how you exercise your rights. They don't become a stumbling block to the weak. So he calls the weak, the person, the brand new believer who knows nothing, who was a pagan worshiper, he calls the weak the person who's tied up in law, who's tied up in their religion. He says both of these people are weak. And if you're a strong believer, if you're full of grace, if you understand that you're free to do these things, you should be willing to give them up so that you create unity within your church. But we don't want to do that. Right? We want to hold to our principles. We want to force other people to understand the things that we understand. But what they're asking for in this letter is that you would give up your rights, both for the religious conservative people that are obnoxious and trying to remind you of every rule that you break, and for the people who are weak and are barely in the faith, who don't understand any of it yet, who haven't quite found their way out of their old lifestyle. He said, by the way, your church should be full of all these kinds of people. Too many churches are saying, hey, we only want religious people who have it all together. That if you're weak and you've come from a pagan background and now you've come to find Jesus, there is no space for you here because you're not perfect yet. You haven't figured out how to live like a Christian should live. And to those of us who are, you know, been in faith for a very long time and we're tied up in the rules and all the laws, that those people, you know, hey, go make your own church somewhere else. Like, those people should be here too. All these people should be together and the church should be unified. That freedom has been given to us in Christ through, through the grace that he's offered to us, that we are no longer bound by the old law, by the Old Testament, by the law of the Old Testament. We're no longer bound by that. We're bound by a new covenant, which is much simpler and much more difficult to fulfill, and is something that fulfills the old law. He said your church should be full of these different kinds of people, religious people, unreligious people, people somewhere in the middle, and that you should find unity by submitting to one another and giving up your freedoms for each other. And I don't know kind of what your experience has been in church or throughout your, your life or your history, but I feel like most of the time when I've been in churches, they've been very uniform. They've been uniform politically, specifically. They've been uniform in the type of person that we're like kind of talking about. And it seems like these people gather up over here and these people gather up over here they're often uniform by race. They're often uniform by uh, age. They're often uniform by, you know, by theological beliefs. You know, believing exactly the same thing. And I think God has created a very diverse church here. That I've seen things that blow my mind in this church. I've seen new believers who have no idea finding their way in and getting it all figured out, and people ushering them into a strong faith. I've seen people tied up in their religion who were able to let it go for the sake of unity. I've seen conservatively political people and liberally political people exist in the same small group and love each other, even though the world says we should vilify each other and hate each other. 
I've seen all this diversity within our church, and I think it's one of the strongest things about starting new churches is that we reach new people, that we try, we try to do things the way that it was kind of outlined for us by Jesus, the church that he kind of created. And we've been going through Acts to remember the way that this church began and to ask ourselves, do we look like this? Are we willing to submit for one another? And is unity the thing that binds us together? And it comes down to an issue of, of freedom. I want to jump ahead here. I want to touch on Galatians uh, chapter 5, verse 1. And I want to talk about freedom for just a second. So this is what it says in Galatians 5. That Paul would one day be writing a letter to the same area of churches that Antioch is kind of right near. The one where he went for the first missionary journey that we talked about, where he went through the area of Galatia. And this letter would have been written to all these churches that he had just been to, that we've just talked through. And it would have been circulated through all these, all these churches. So this is relevant to what we're talking to. As Paul went back to Antioch as a hub, and then his first missionary journey was through Galatia, this is what he says about freedom. It is for freedom that Christ sets us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. He says, you've come out of law, you've come out of religion, you don't need to go back to it. Be free in the grace that Jesus gives you. And understand that the new covenant is much more difficult to apply, but much simpler to understand. Let's skip it down to 13 in, verse five, or in chapter 5. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. He might as well be saying, for your church to make it, you have to be unified around the things that are most important, and it's going to start with you serving one another humbly in Love For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. And for me, you know, being kind of a, a leader who I, I just, for me, I love vision. I love understanding where we're going and what God is calling us to. What makes what God has called us to do different and, uh, and what mission has he directly given us that wasn't being accomplished. And you might say, well, there's a million churches out there and they're accomplishing a lot of things and we're doing the same things as them and you're not exactly wrong, but we've been given a vision for what this church should look like and where we're going. Like for us, being a church that is integrated into the community is like so incredibly important. Understanding that there was a place on the east side of this school district where there was a lot of physical need and that we could cozy right up into an area we're literally outside the walls of this church. There are dozens of apartment buildings and there are dozens of mobile home communities where people are struggling with physical needs. Those needs have only gotten more in incredibly difficult to fulfill over the last couple of years as we've been dealing with inflation and economy that's slowed down and things are more difficult to figure out and gas has become more expensive and milk has become more expensive. The, dur during the time that we kind of moved in here and kind of found ourselves in this community, Ralph Reeder, our food shelf, their demand has gone up by like 50% in the last year and a half. And we found ourselves right in this area saying, hey, there's need right here in this school district and we can meet it. And we partnered with the community center here so we'd have a physical presence in this community. And we've gotten in with Ralph Reeder and worked right alongside them providing through our, our, uh, our fall outreach, what we do, you know, our resource fair, through this Christmas thing that we're doing, and through regular uh, connection and commitment, and also by giving to them a lot of what comes into this church. We give away 3% uh, right off the top that goes both directly to Ralph Reeder and to Quincy House. 
like from day one. So 3% to each of those. So 6% goes right out the door before we do anything else. And we give more than that because whenever they have need, we just give more. We know what we're doing here. And we know what we've been called to look like as a church. I think the things that guide you when you're trying to figure out what this church looks like are your values, right? So let's take a look real quick at what our, our values look like. You want to throw them up on screen there for me? It's our first one. We're an imperfect church for imperfect people. I don't know if everyone understands this. This is not our mission statement. Most of the time when you ask somebody, hey, what's the mission statement of this church? They'll go, we're an imperfect church for imperfect people. And what they mean is like, they accept me. They even accept me. And they're like, have you met the pastor? Right? Nothing could be truer about this church. That we're an imperfect church for imperfect people. But I want you to understand, if you actually go to our website, you read what that, the blurb next to that. You know what we're looking for? We're not looking for perfection. But we are looking for people who are ready to be transformed. People who are ready to be moved by the Holy Spirit and ready to give up pieces of their life so that they can be changed into who God wants them to be. We don't want people who feel like they've already got it together. And we don't want people who say, God can't move certain areas of my life. I won't give those things to him. We're an imperfect church for imperfect people. It's core to who we are. That vision, that, those, these values keep us on track. So when we say, hey, should we be focused on this small, disputable area of theology? And understand, we go, no. Does this fit into our mission? Our mission so always be in pursuit of Jesus and the people he loves. Our value is that we're an imperfect church for imperfect people. Now we can say, is this a big deal? It's not. Your politics, they're not a big deal here. We don't care. It's not part of our values. It's not part of our mission. Okay, next one. We are big K kingdom people. We care about God's overall kingdom, not just our little kingdom that we're producing here in pursuit. Okay, we care about all the other churches that are doing the same work that we're doing. We're in a denomination of 250 churches that work together. We were planted by two other churches that wanted to see us exist here to re- meet the, the needs that exist in our community. We planted in our first three years a church in White Bear so that we could continue to plant new churches in different places so that we could see the mission of God continue to build. We'll work with anybody who's willing to say Jesus is Lord, who's willing to understand what the Bible means, who's willing to get in and roll their sleeves up and get into the community. We'll work with anybody. We don't share values perfectly with our food shelf. It's not a Christian organization. We don't share values perfectly with Quincy House. There's a couple of values that they have that we do not hold, yet we roll up our sleeves and get alongside them because that's where God is at work in our community. So we're big K kingdom people. We care much more about the big K kingdom. If you go, I don't love this church, then my goal is to help you find a church you love. Because I want to see you still be active and part of the kingdom. And I want to see other churches flourish too. And I, I, there's no reason to ever be territorial. Like, Three out of ten Minnesotans are in a church on a Sunday morning. That means there's seven out of ten that we can still reach. All the churches could fill all their seats up every single week, and we would still not even reach half of the people in this, in this state. There's more unsaved people than we can ever reach all together. We can continue to plant another church. and We could close church here, put everything away. Another church could come in behind us. They could end. Another one could come in behind them. They could end. It could go all day on Sunday, and we would still not even crack the amount of people who don't know Jesus yet in this community. Do you understand that? We are big K kingdom people. So we're reaching who we're reaching and we're excited for other churches who are reaching people that we aren't. That's part of who we are. Next one, we're passionate about people who aren't here yet. And you know why we are? Because they don't have a voice in your church. I, I do a sermon you don't like, I hear about it. Send me an email, you text me, you say something sarcastic or get a passive aggressive note from you. Hey, great sermon. 
right? But you know who never emails me? You know who never tries to assert their rights or their, their place in our church? It's people who aren't here yet. People who are lost. People who don't know Jesus. People who aren't connected in a church. And in fact, I would say we probably have an epidemic of people who have walked away from the church almost as much as people who don't know anything about Jesus. That reeling those people back in and helping them find a place where they can trust the church again is almost as important as anything we do here. And so we're passionate about people who aren't here yet because we have to be their voice. When we think about what we're doing as a church, we're thinking through the idea of who are we going to affect who's not here yet and how do we reach those people. Your voice is important in this place. We have covenant membership, and if you want to have a, a say in what happens in this church, you want to vote, you understand what goes on, become a covenant member. We would love for you to do that. You get a say. Also, we think about the people who aren't here yet, the people who aren't saved, the people who walked away from the church, the people who wouldn't find their, themselves here on a Sunday morning. Next one, we're convinced Jesus' gospel is good news for all. You might have been a Christian for 50 years. You might have been a Christian for five minutes. Jesus' gospel is good news for you. He continues, and I wish, I, I think this is really funny. My, my pastor, Randy, are you here right now? Randy, when I was growing up, you guys know this story? Like, uh, I, I grew up, I accepted Jesus in Randy's church. We, we were in Connecticut. Uh, I was a teenager when I accepted Christ, and uh, he's my pastor for my whole entire teenage years, and we've been close family friends forever, and it's only been the last couple years that they moved out to Springley Park and joined our church. Now I get to pastor my pastor. How cool is that? You're the man, Rand. Uh, we're actually, we're kicking around the idea of writing a book together, so I don't, I don't think it'll be any good, and no one will probably read it, but it'll be fun to do. I'm as convinced that Jesus' gospel is good news for everyone as I was the, the first day I accepted Jesus. I was on my knees in my youth leader's living room after I had had some pizza and played basketball with some other teenagers pouring my heart out and accepting Jesus in that place. And for me, the, the gospel un, just undid me. I just couldn't stand up. I couldn't, I couldn't even figure out what was happening inside of me, but the grace of Jesus met me in that moment and just undid everything about me. And you might have had a moment like that. You might have accepted Jesus when you can't even remember accepting Jesus, but his gospel is still good news for every person. Your imperfection meets his gospel, and that grace is poured out on you, and that changes everything about you, and it continues to change everything about you. And I wish, Rand, I'm, I'm kind of glad you didn't tell me this, but if you had told me that day that Jesus was going to like, like continue to wreck my life and pursue every area of my life I didn't want to give him, that he was relentlessly going to actually pursue me and continue to work all those pieces out of my... I might not have said yes to the gospel in that moment because it's a lifelong pursuit and you never arrive and you never have it all together. And the moment you think you do, you need another dose of grace to remind you that you don't. That is, gospel is good news for all. And I think this is, this is the last one. Yeah. And this is one that is tried and true about us. We're all about community, and we're all about the community. Those are the things that guide us. We want to see community happening in this church. I don't actually know how people get through life without having community at church. I don't know. I know every single difficult thing that we've gone through over the past, you know, 25 years of, of me being a believer, and, you know, last 10, 15 years we've been in small groups in different churches that we've been in. I don't know how we get through those things without people and community in our lives. It's so ridiculously important. 
And by the way, this is just another plug. If you're not in a small group, you're not doing it right. You just aren't. You're not submitted to other people. You're not allowing yourself to work in their lives. You're just missing out on what this is all about. And I get it. If you're new, like, we'll get you in one. It'll take time. That's fine. You can trust us first. That's okay. But eventually, that's where we want you to go. And we are all about the community. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for the world. We are the church. We exist for the world. You are the church. You exist for the world. That's what we, we believe here. And then, of course, our sixth value, which we don't have a slide for, is what? Yeah, it's not on our website anywhere. You've got to do a deep dive to find that one. So let's do food. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close our time here, and I'm just going to pray over our mushy, brown, crockpot, slow cooker, hot dish meal, and I'm going to ask God to bless the community that happens during those times. And I just want to say, for those of you who are on day one, thank you. For those of you who have joined last week, thank you. This church is, I think our best days are ahead of us. I think the best is yet to come in this place. I think we've seen and been through a whole lot in these four years and we're positioned to continue to reach our community and see God do amazing things. And so I hope that you join us and and put your hand on the plow to see that happen. Let me pray over our meal and let's do our sixth value. God, thank you for your faithfulness, for your clear call, for your vision for what we're doing here, for how you've moved in this community I am in awe, God, of every single thing that you have provided, everything you've done, every door you've opened, every person that you've reached. And Jesus, I pray that we would continue to reach people in this community to serve them and to love them, to be your church, to be on mission for you. Jesus, we don't want to just exist for ourselves. We want to exist for the world around us. I pray for those 600 families that will be here in a couple months shopping for Christmas gifts for those thousand children that will be blessed by this ministry. God, for those apartment buildings, for those mobile home communities, God, for people in need all around us, that, God, they would find their way into this place and they would have their spiritual needs met as we also meet their physical needs in our community. God, I pray that we would be the kind of people that would submit to your authority and give up our freedom for one another so that this church is unified. Would you now bless our sixth value of food? In Jesus' name, amen.